like to welcome everyone uh, to uh, 2006. And uh, as we do for the first class that I'm here, uh, in each new year we uh, offer a Dharma talk that uh, hopefully has something to bear upon the precepts, the refuges, or just being a community together. And then uh, we take the refuges and precepts in a formal kind of way. Uh, So tonight I'd like to talk about living an ethical life uh, because I think it's vastly misunderstood. And I can remember early on in my uh, own training uh, really questioning whether the precepts were even necessary in my arrogance and uh, thinking that I could get by just as easily without them. I don't know. <laughs> and um, uh, and um, but but asking that question is an important directive for all of us because they're not commandments, they're not vows, they're not scolding um, uh, uh, laws to be obeyed. In fact, I, I just uh, taught at IMS, and uh, I. Always, as always, after a long retreat, I watch uh, the people, having gone through the process of several days, uh, in this case, ten days, um, and how they come out of that retreat. Uh, And universally, if there was um, an application of the methodology and the technique, they come out soft. They come out um, open, available, available. And... If, you, if, I, um, if people notice uh, how the interactions are uh, from that sense of openness, they're very considerate. It's a very um, uh, heartfelt connection uh, that opens, people open up to after a retreat. And uh, people love that in themselves for the most part. Uh, there's a, a deep a sense of inward gratitude for just being alive. And that gratitude spreads out so that in the connectedness of body, speech, and mind with other beings, including other humans, that there's this extension of that gratitude and a real strong, though not uh, conscious, a following of of the perceptual or the ethical codes of life. The ethical codes of life are natural resonance from that softness. That's what I love about uh, the practice is that, see, the, the ethical conduct um, is, um, is a given when we become or allow ourselves some sense of vulnerability. Have you ever known anyone to be vulnerable and brutal at the same time? Not likely. Because those two are... Um, uh, actually uh, direct opposites of each other. And so uh, with, a, with the first light touch of mindfulness, with the first willingness to caress life uh, and make the, that immediate contact, begins uh, the uh, assimilation of the body and mind uh, within that sensitivity, within that heartfelt space. In fact, the first, as the water uh, uh, level uh, uh, sinks lower 
into one's mind so that the the sea level begins to access uh, the cells of one's body. The first uh, uh, dramatic difference that mindfulness, that light touch of mindfulness makes is that uh, people um, no longer want to hurt one another. And probably most of you, the vast majority of you, have already felt that touch. You just don't want to do it. Even in the uh, uproarious states of rage or terror, uh, still there's a governance, even within where we're most cast out of ourselves. Still, there is a deep abiding within that non-harm state that cannot, at some point, as the meditation sinks to really and gains momentum within us, uh, cannot be betrayed. It's just self-governing. You don't have to. We don't have to think about it. You don't have to. You don't have to scold yourself into it. It's not an overcoat or a new set of clothes that we put on. It's a natural tendency that when we open into softness and interconnection into that more sensitive life that it holds itself. It keeps its own precept. And that's the way all the precepts are meant. In fact, what I, I don't know yoga very well, but I've heard that the postures of yoga have actually come out of deep meditative states. They're called mudras in, in the Hindu tradition. Uh, when, when you sink into a deep meditative state, the body uh, spontaneously moves into a, a one of those postures or a posture of that. In, in, in the Buddhist tradition, it's often shown with hand, hand signals uh, that are called mudras or just natural movements of the hand that are given or governed by that deep state of meditation. But we try to emulate it, don't we? We try to get into our yoga postures, <laughs> Uh, and forget the state of mind and make it into a kind of a discipline for ourselves. And it doesn't work quite as well when it doesn't naturally accompany that state of mind, that deep state of relaxation. So too the precepts. The precepts are natural inclinations, natural way that we respond in life to all circumstances, to all experiences when we have fostered a deepening sense of, of awareness within ourselves and that that then becomes the natural way that our life manifests. It is not an inward moral statement of being good. And that's so important to understand because if we don't understand it, then it can easily become a statement of moral uh, worth and a judgment Judge, uh, enormous judgmental quality of how well we're doing on that scale of being good which is a forever scale of uh, of, of uh, tension and hardness of the heart you see when you're trying to be good feel the hardness involved in that when we're trying to live up to a certain set of standards or worth or commandments there's a tension in how we live isn't there there's a kind of way we hold ourselves in relationship to everything else so that we can act within the narrow corridors of being good. Well, this isn't about that. This is a complete opposite statement. This is throwing the, the walls wide open. That open-hearted stance of just 
being aware, the awareness itself, the softening, that light touch. I love the sense of just the light caress of mindfulness. That that intone of almost a blessing of our life to our life. Just just it, the descendant quality comes down and touches us. And that beautiful ability to thrive within that tenderness. And we have to find our way because we're scared within that tenderness when we have lived so uh, completely within our defenses that to release our defenses seems um, seems uh, to disarm ourselves in some way. And so we have to apply uh, mindfulness and its accompanying tenderness slowly and carefully so that we find that it's safe within that field of awareness. And the beauty of it is that um, we do. And once you feel feel the, over, the sense of the impact of joy upon our being as that awareness becomes fully embodied, uh, there's, it's a one-way road. You can't turn back. I mean, how many of you now want to turn back to selfishness and be greedy? How, is that an option in your life? Quite likely it isn't. Although those moments of greed may find their uh, intrusion in events, but nevertheless, the main course, the intention of our life is not towards that. And it's not an intention that is, um, that is a, a sort of a rancorous statement within us at all. It's a tender statement. It's a, it's a statement of very soft eyes. You see? And so, too, the precepts begin to infiltrate our lives in that way. I mean, the Buddha said, somebody asked him one time, he said, what do you teach? Give it to me in a nutshell. And he says, well, I teach samadhi, the ability to focus and steady, oneness of mind, mental harmony. And I teach from that mental harmony the ability to see and Panya, it's called in this tradition, or wisdom, what I see from that steady quality of mind. And he says, I teach sila, which governs one's ability to even hold and have that stability of mind. And the relaxation and tenderness from which that samadhi and wisdom comes. We forget how important it is to have those touch points in our life that allow us to know whether we're acting in accordance with old condition patterns that have long been the roots, the, the roots and grooves and channels from which we all our activity has, has continued, or whether we are acting from this new sense of inward softness and tenderness and connectedness. And uh, for the most part, uh, we forget a lot. And to have a standard for us to, um, to understand, oh, I'm off base here. I'm, I'm operating according to the old, my old way of being, not my new intentions. And so the precepts can be used as a kind of, as a sort of, of caution, caution like a yellow light flashing that you are violating some of the principles of the deepest intentions of your heart. When we break those precepts, when we are flagrant in our 
harm and our uh, selfishness and our language and our sexual behavior or in our ingestion of drugs and drinks and other intoxicants. And so those precepts, although they're very general, can become very specific in terms of it telling us whether we are moving in accordance to our spiritual, deep yearning of our spiritual heart or whether we are being governed by the old mind's conditioning. They are not there to, uh, to whip you, to thrash you into shape. They are there to, as a guidance, as a soft arm, as a reminder, as a touch, touch point on our shoulder to look and to see, to see what we're doing, to investigate, to ask whether this is the course I want my life to take. Lying, taking things that are not mine, to live in that kind of unethical way around my sense and encouraging my sense of separation and isolation. Because that's not what this practice is about. And hopefully all of us have practiced sufficiently, even if this is one of your first Tuesday nights. It doesn't take long for you to understand that the intentions of this practice lead very differently than the intentions of a worldly life. So wherever we start or however we start, we plunge into these precepts. And at first they may feel like the old commandments of our former religion or current religion. But at least they start doing, eliminating certain unhealthy and uh, contrived and cantankerous situations in our life. Even at the range of of, uh, commandments, they still have some way to help us and influence us in the direction of more simplicity. But that's not where this practice moves. This practice and the people in, in our understanding may start there, but that is not in any way where it moves. See, we, it, it, how we phrase tonight, tonight as, we, um, as we recite the precepts, it, they start out by saying, I undertake the training. I undertake the training. I undertake the training means I just set the intention for my life. I'm just setting the intention up here. I undertake this training to offer non-harm, to be a statement of non-harm. Think of the gift to the world in making a statement of non-harm. You have nothing, it's a statement of fearlessness. You have nothing to fear from me. My life is going to be about non-harm. So everyone we need energetically feels that intentionality. We may not always be up to the task, but at the same time, the intention is so strong that it's very quickly corrected, even if we may lean uh, in the opposite direction once in a while. I undertake that training to refrain from, to refrain from what? To refrain from reaction, reactive patterns, which cripple and create the uh, ground of ignorance and confusion, of distortion and a greed and hatred response. 
So I'm going to undertake the training, set the intention to refrain from reacting in this situation. Going with my first knee-jerk response, which is to accumulate, which is to hold myself separate from. I, uh, someone, one of you, quite likely you're out there somewhere, sent me this story as an email, and I'd just like to read it because I thought it was a very nice one that describes the point at hand. She says, my first experience with meditation, though I didn't know it at the time, was ballet. I call it an elaborate form of walking meditation. I danced for many years and used it to establish a theory, a theory for living. An idea really fell into place a few years ago, and it has had a significant impact on my approach to practice. Much like meditation in ballet, you do the same exercises day after day until you become proficient with the technique. It's the foundation of the performance. When we are close to performing, the director will tell us, when you get on stage, throw it all away. Your technique will still be there. Don't worry. Just throw it all away. People who electrify us on stage are creative and spontaneous. The classroom can't teach spontaneity because it is the radiant expression of the person's light. The classroom takes them to the point of takeoff, but they must enter the unknown alone. When I saw this in light of Buddhist practice, it spoke to me. I saw others in myself getting bogged down by rules and instructions and the right way to do everything. It was like building a glass ceiling over our heads. But the rules are dead. They just lie there flat like a poem or something else until someone picks them up and breathes life into them. The instructions themselves don't have value. It's the life that's attempting to use them that has the value. This has been a helpful way to switch the order of things when I realize I am trying to be good or proficient. To remember the teachings are in service to life not the other way around. So use them, but be ready to throw them away when our own light shines beyond that shadow. I thought that was a beautiful representation of what we're talking about in terms of the precepts. You know, what we love, see, what we love is rules of obedience. You see, when we have rules of obedience, you know your place in things, don't you? And you know your place to whatever it is that you're trying to obey. In this case, the practice, whatever the practice. Where is the practice? Who is the practice? So we have this internal order of things that we try to maintain. But our internal order has been formed by what? By our old mind, our old mind, our old ideals, our expectations are the ideals that have come out from a reaction of how we find ourselves and the life around us. So we create these ideals that are in the opposite direction and then we try to live up to the standards we create and we create a kind of shell around ourselves in that, in that sort of way, in the hardness. Where is the spontaneity? See, where is the faith that says that if I relax, if I let life in, if I release myself from the need to adhere to the principles, to the strict principles of things, 
that there won't that something else might emerge that is uh, governed by basic goodness not goodness of thought or ideal but basic goodness free free floating goodness that has to do with the truth of interconnection that's where this is taking us now and the beauty about the precepts is that and the beauty about the practice really is that we can always begin again we can always start again we're never defeated we're never defeated ultimately ultimately that is what forgiveness is is that uh, rehabilitation comes through holding our past without indulging in those self-deprecating stories that we tell about ourselves we can hold our past whatever we might have done and we may feel remorse at having done it but in this moment the intention intention which is the only thing we have the intention for our life is is not to move in that direction anymore or why would we feel remorse and so we can begin again we can renew ourselves which we can't if we think of ourselves as some fixed separate thing that must begrudge all of its trans all of its transgressions all of its mistakes we just keep um, accumulating the mistakes of our life until the scars of those mistakes become so deeply cut into our flesh that we can't live but this is a call to refresh ourselves oh well look at that I lied again okay let's go let's see let me look at that see if we have the freedom to begin again then we also have the freedom to examine what we just did examine it investigate it then we can it, it, what will come is what we were what 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 we were uh, what motivation led to that lie or distortion of truth to begin with and we can see what we wanted from that distortion why we offered a distortion rather than the truth and to see that allows for the correcting posture to to uh, the the corrective learning to occur so that that situation if it happens again we won't fall into that same trap but if you hold yourself rigid moralistically to the fault then you're going to create a create more friction around the shadow of what loomed when that fault occurred and when that conditions are right for that shadow to arise the behavior will come out more dramatically because it will never have been understood we understand our way into interconnection through the faults of our isolation and separation through looking at it and seeing that how we lived was at fault with the truth that to tell a lie just using that as an example was because i wanted to protect myself i wanted to enrich my image through that lie but when we look at the image 
when we look at who it is that's having the image or the need for the image, it falls flat. And therefore, lying falls flat when we don't need to build up our image. But as long as the image is not perceived as being just a story of myself, then we're going to try to manage and maintain it at all expense, which includes lying. It's in the investigation of what it is that's motivating the breaking of the precepts that leads to the healing of that intention. So ethics asks, what is the optimum strategy uh, for life to be lived in love? That's basically what the precepts are about, to lay the foundation for my life to become one which is centered in the heart and no longer in the mind. And with the confidence that the heart knows its own way. That it doesn't need uh, a lot of direction. It doesn't need a lot of blueprint here. Because when the heart is ungoverned, when it is allowed just to be spontaneously there, it acts in kindness. It acts in honesty. Not trying to protect anything. And may I say, um, it's particularly hard to have those values when as a collective society, just the opposite is true. We are not a society that, that uh, values honesty. Not as a collective. Because what's driving the collective economically is the market forces of distortion so that you'll buy and purchase. And when you have that as the foundation and the models and the leadership mimicking that foundation, then you have no, you have no way to model our values And so it makes it more difficult, but it doesn't make it impossible because we form as a group. We form as a collective ourselves, and then we use each other to help us move more deeply into the wise way that we see things. So that was the preamble of a talk. And now I... <laughs> <the> <laughs> <laughs> What I really wanted to explore <laughs> is how sila, or perceptual ethical conduct, works to open us to clear seeing. How does it work? What are the specifics? What is the way that sila works on us? And I have eight different... <laughs> The first thing it does is that it establishes wise view. As I mentioned, uh, mostly we live in the view of distortion. We live in the view of the assumption, the assumption only. That's where the mistake is. That I'm in here and everything else is out there. That's, a, that's an assumed place of where sight comes from. And when 
that's investigated and looked upon, you can begin to see that it it doesn't have a center. There's no there's no place, there's no center for which that sight, for which that view unfolds. And when we are locked in the view of separation, then we're going to offer a, re- a fixed response to all things because reactive patterns are fixed responses, conditioned responses that when left alone, given certain conditions arise, and those fixed responses will arise. And those fixed responses are around me being in here and everything else out there. So this thing in here needs to protect itself, defend itself, accumulate, and compete. And so the value system that comes out of that kind of assumption necessarily has dishonesty at its base. But wise view, the precepts and wise view, they begin to allow space to occur so that we're not just reacting from that old view that we invite a space to bridge between the new view of a more interconnected way of being as opposed to that old view of separation and isolation. And we fill that space between those views with the awareness of our motivation. So we know what it is that's motivating that call for reactivity. We feel it. As I mentioned in the example of lying, that sense of needing to protect my image. You see it in yourself in the moment it's happening. And then you say, wait a second here. I don't need to do this anymore. I don't need to do this anymore. And the second way the precepts invite clear seeing is that uh, it allows a light, harmonious mind. It's amazing, really. I don't know, you know, uh, if you take the smallest thing that we repetitively do that's a little bit dishonest, you know those small things like overstating your mileage to the IRS or something. (laughs) You know, and so, and then you just say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Suddenly, this whole dialogue that has been going on year after year internally with the IRS when they find out that you've and how you've got to rationalize your mileage statements, it just drops. It's not there anymore. So what's, what comes instead is this quietude. And even though you saved all of uh, $13 a year, <laughs> that's how ridiculous it becomes. Because it becomes dishonesty for dishonesty's sake. It doesn't matter how much it saves us. It's a way of life. Dishonesty is a way of life. It becomes the motivation for business, for interpersonal relationships, for your uh, employment, everything. And suddenly you just, just because there's so much fear in giving up dishonesty, there is. There's a lot of fear because we think that the way, what has made us what we are now and all of the money that we have and all of that is the fact that we've been able to shade the truth. And suddenly you give it up and your bank, nothing happens to you, but a lot happens to your heart. A lot happens to your heart. And you get quiet inside. 
I hope by now we all realize that the way towards samadhi or attention or steadiness of mind is through relaxation and ease. Not through discipline and ambition and striving. Not through that hard-handedness. But through the willingness to relax into life. Releasing the tensions of life. Then the mind settles down because what is the tension? But that inward dialoguing, monologuing really, that keeps us from being able to pay attention. And when we release that tension, then we also get quiet inside. And that sense of settledness is a component part of that arriving in ourselves. The third way it works is that it's similar to this last way. It limits paranoia. We simply know ourselves well enough that even if we're accused of something, we don't become defensive and self-justifying. There's a kind of way that and I, often I get accused of things. You know, how come you said that? Did you deliberately want to... No, my intention is not to harm. My use of words is not often as skillful as I would like to have them, nor is my tone, but my intention is never to harm. And so knowing that, I can listen to the feedback of whatever someone might say and then try to address the mechanics so that my intention is seen for what it is. But it doesn't shake me as a person to have somebody give me feedback in which they've misunderstood. They've misunderstood my intentions, that's all. And to be able to take a stand without being paranoid that everybody's going to find you out, that all of the past deceit is going to come cresting over us at some point, allows a deep sense of relaxation. We're not constantly turning and reflecting upon and hoping that nobody discovers us. The posture becomes upright. And it frees the mind from remorse. Which takes us into the fourth reason that sila or ethical conduct leads to clear seeing. Is that it be- you begin to see the past as the past. When we take that upright position of non-harm, then all of the things that we have done in the past can be seen as the past, since we are now taking a posture in the presence of no longer fostering activity that that we would need to be remorseful about. You see how, how the line becomes clearly drawn between what the statement I am making now and all the things I used to be like. And it doesn't mean that we don't feel the pain of what we have done in the past. We do. We feel that. But it doesn't carry forth in terms of an engaged story in the present because the present has been renovated so that the past can't touch it or influence it anymore. Not that we don't own our mistakes and apologize for them, but it doesn't carry forth. And we see that what is coming forth and trying to carry us forth is the past conditioning, not the present me, 
Not the posture, not the upright posture. Our shoulders don't slump. We sit up straight. And when we get the barrage of old feelings and old whatever that comes forth, yes, which it comes forth in all of us, that's how we put an end to it. It's by understanding that it ends here. It ends in this moment. And will not be carried forth. But if we have deceit, if we're hiding, if we're clamped down, insecure, contracted, then when that past comes through, it carries us right on through. Because it's looking for a hook to drag us into the present, through the present. And that contraction is the hook it needs, is the unclarity it needs to pull us forth into the next moment. Carrying forth that same message of insecurity or self-beratement. Feel the power of Sila. Feel the power of what we're talking about. We're talking about ending your past in this. And we cannot be ended unless we are willing to make the statement that now is about interconnection. Now my intentions will be something different. They will come from the heart. Come what may, they will come from the heart. The fifth way that this invites clear seeing is that what we're offering when we make a statement of non-harm is a gift, an ongoing meta towards all being. Ongoing. It's the engaged heart, the heart of kindness. And that's a gift. You know what it's like when you're perhaps working diligently with metta and you're walking on the street and you're just uh, flaring metta out to the crowds as they <laughs> go. And that feeling of, of being um, available in some way that we're not often. And the, and the joy that comes from giving That's the onward joy, the ongoing joy of Sila. Because we're always making that statement. Perhaps non-verbally, but it's always felt as a true offering to life, replenishing itself. And one beautiful um, example in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi uh, at his home monastery in Japan talked about what he called Half Dipper Bridge. Half Dipper Bridge was a stream that went in front of the monastery and the monks would all go take a full scoop, a whole dipper of water, drink half, and then give half back to the water. And he said it doesn't make any sense at all to anyone until your heart is full. And then it makes sense. To give back. To give back. To return. And that's the returning of a full heart of, eth- of, ethical, of an ethical life. Now here's one. This is number six, so we just may go over a little bit. But Sila, or ethical conduct, acts as a safeguard for exploring a mind state. This is one that I don't think we realize well enough. For instance, take lust. If we were hedging our monogamous vows 
meaning that we were having affairs and things, then when lust comes up, it takes you in to that frame of reference. And uh, with moral, um, with a moral uh, uh, backlash, uh, you may be afraid to even look at lust for what it means in your life and how you are breaking the vows and not living up to your particular standards. But when you're ethical, bring lust on. Let me look at that. Let me look at that thing. There's no fear in it because monogamy is your stated purpose, intention, and way of life. And whatever it is that seems to be wanting to interfere with that, you want to look at. You want to understand it. I'm not afraid of it at all. And so the willingness to be ethical has a, a kind of protective quality to being able to explore and look at things. And to understand things that we would be feared to tread uh, in other circumstances. I think that's a very interesting one and one that uh, just occurred to me as I was writing this talk. The seventh is a more traditional uh, point and that is that it allows uh, wholesome karma and frees us from old conditioning. When you just live in a non-conflictual way, you feel life getting easier and easier and circumstances often coming in to support you more and more. And I don't know, I don't want to make it too esoteric, but it does. It's just whatever you have wished for your whole life and worked so diligently for, when you relax ethically in awareness, you find coming to you. Because we're not creating the standards of, for blockages within that very thing. So wholesome karma. You know, to leave people alone. To leave life alone. To let it move as it's moving. It's not as if it's not already moving. It's moving. It doesn't need us to push it. You don't need to push the water to make it flow. It's flowing. Life is a verb. It's already flowing. You just think of yourself as a noun. And a noun has to push in order for things to be a verb. <laughs> the eighth one, and I like this one because it's uh, where I focus our dharma, and that is it helps us to understand anatta. How does it help us to understand anatta? Atta, or the sense of me, is built upon argument and conflict and struggle. It's built upon enemies, really. In order for me to be known, I need a lot of enemies. And every time I have an enemy, I'm better known. Now, sila, or ethical conduct, does just the opposite. It lives, makes harmonious relationships. Therefore, you don't have as many cantankerous or conflicting relationships. And therefore, you begin to feel this open space occur through being less defined by one's own argument. And the spaciousness allows you to begin to see what you are. In fact, 
it eliminates the need for further argument. And so without sila, without inviting that kind of ethical behavior within us, anatta is a forbidden fruit. We aren't even interested in it, to be honest. We're interested in going the other way, building ourselves out of life, being better known. No wonder the world is in the shape it is in. And so to understand emptiness, we have to release the tensions of the world. We have to be willing to step out of some of the fundamental causes of our isolation. And so the precepts. When the Buddha says, I teach wisdom and I teach steadiness of mind, samadhi, and I teach sila, he wasn't sinking down into a kind of moral statement about, now I'm teaching you be good. He was teaching the heart of his teaching. He was teaching the way of it. He was teaching, in fact, how it manifests. How the truth manifests. What is always so delicious about his teaching to me is that I always hear the end product in everything he teaches. Sila wasn't a means to an end. It's how we are when we're finished. And for us to keep inviting that finishing, that completion, even as we move through the journey of awakening. And may we all awaken through Sila. Can we sit for a minute or two?